Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation and a diligent student of the Bible. Our reader is We Hold These Truths faithful volunteer and dramatist Leslie Fort. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's Bible examination, we're in the book of Acts. We're going to step back and take a look at Paul's view of the resurrection. And uh, once again, Mark Horton will be leading our study. And as we like to do, we'll open with a word of prayer. Craig, please. Dearly Father, we thank you so much that we have your holy word to reveal uh, yourself to us. We thank you that you chose to do that and that through your word we can learn about you, about Jesus, about how to live. And Lord, we just ask you right now to open hearts and be able to receive uh, the truth that Mark brings to us this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. Welcome, Mark. Well, thank you. It's great to be back with everyone. We've reached a very exciting uh, point in the book of Acts by looking at the trials of Paul we see uh, really the weaknesses of uh, all non-dispensational end times views that are popular in America today. And obviously, amongst people who claim that the Bible is the inspired word of God, the dispensational view has reigned supreme uh, for the last generation or two in our country and has wreaked havoc, death, and destruction around the world uh, uh, particularly in the Middle East, as, as we all know. And so what we're trying to do is examine Paul's view of the resurrection and the hope of Israel and compare that to what, well, of course, to what uh, dispensationalists and Zionists believe, but also to what the non-dispensational uh, churches have believed and taught and, and perhaps show why they have been completely unsuccessful in debunking and disproving uh, dispensationalism over the last two generations with terrible, terrible consequences. Over and over in Acts 23 through 26, Paul, Paul has been examined by, he's addressed the masses of Judeans assembled for Pentecost in the temple courtyard. He has then uh, been brought in front of the ruling council of Judea, the Sanhedrin. He has then uh, been brought down to Caesarea by a very competent uh, military officer who saved Paul's life and got him uh, out of harm's way as the Pharisees were trying to kill him. Felix and Festus and Agrippa have all heard uh, Paul make his defense. Some of them have also heard his accusers, who originally were the Sadducees, but then within 10 days the Sadducees had dropped out all but the high priest and the Pharisees, had joined in. And so we've looked at how 
the view of the Pharisees on resurrection, while initially they thought that Paul must have agreed with them, after a little bit of investigation, they must have realized that they had totally different views. And the vast majority of Pharisees by the first century believed in a physical bodily resurrection. They believed that when the kingdom was restored to Israel, as promised by God over and over and over, irrevocable promises uh, made to David that his throne would be restored and one of his descendants would sit upon it. These promises were made uh, to Old Covenant Israel, and the Pharisees thought that they would all be fulfilled literally. And we've noted an uncanny parallel between what the Pharisees in the first century believed and what our dispensational and Zionist friends today believe. They want physical fulfillment of all these irrevocable promises of God. And Saul of Tarsus was all into that, and uh, I think we reviewed how that he, he was struck blind by God this for three days. This is an exact mirror of Egypt being struck dead by, uh, being, being struck blind, rather, darkness <laughs> striking Egypt for three days. Judah has now become Egypt figuratively speaking. They are sinful. Uh, Egypt represents bondage to sin in the book of Exodus. And now Judah represents bondage to sin in the book of Acts as well as in the Gospels. So the Pharisees are trying to obey the law perfectly. And as Paul demonstrates in his letters, if you try to do that, you are, you are in bondage to sin and you are in bondage to death. There is a direct link between law, sin, and death. Death is the result of sin. Sin is a result of trying to live by the law perfectly, which the Pharisees were trying to do. So there's many, many parallels between our dispensationalist friends today and the Pharisees. Uh, and, and again, Chuck was very ahead of his time by you know, putting out Pharisee watch, look, watching the neo-Pharisees that we have alive and well with us today. As Paul is defending himself, he uses the hope of Israel and the resurrection as synonymous terms, as one and the same thing. And there's also a close relationship between the hope of Israel, resurrection, and the kingdom. And the dispensationalists are correct to note that the resurrection will not occur until the kingdom comes. And, of course, they believe that they're both way off in the future. This is where the non-dispensational Bible-believing churches get confused because they try to separate. They try to say, well, the kingdom came in the first century, but the resurrection has not occurred yet. And so this is what we want to do, and this is a, a little bit shocking for many of us. It's so hard to go against what we have been uh, taught all our lives, what we have heard all of our lives, the, the traditions that have come down for hundreds and hundreds of years through Roman uh, Catholicism, then through the Protestant Reformation to our modern-day churches, where they're still looking for a physical resurrection, just like the Pharisees of old. As we studied last week, Isaiah 24 and 25, 
we, we demonstrated that the death that was going to be overcome in Israel's last days was not physical bodily death, but it was covenantal death, sin death, the same death that Adam and Eve incurred back in the Garden of Eden. In the day you'll eat of it, you will surely die. Well, they did, their bodies did not die, but they were separated from God. They were rejected from the Garden. They were rejected from God's presence. And throughout the Old Testament, to be separated from the Promised Land meant to be separated from God's presence and to incur covenantal death, sin death. And uh, Time out, Mark? Yeah. Could you give us an idea of which churches you're referring to that anticipate a physical resurrection of uh, you and I and uh, at, at, after death? Uh, what, well, what churches would do that? Well, I, I don't I have never gone through on that one particular topic and, and researched it, but I'm not aware of hardly any that don't teach that. I mean, certainly it's a cornerstone. Well, I say that. It may not be. Of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Jehovah's Witnesses. Yeah, but, but, yeah, which is not really a denomination. But, but a lot of the Protestant creeds, uh, the <clears throat> Presbyterian, all of the Reformed churches, which would include American Reformed, Dutch Reformed, um, uh, the conservative Presbyterian churches. I would think the Lutheran churches, although they're not strictly Reformed, uh, I would think they all have in their creeds the idea of a future bodily resurrection of the dead. But I, but I, I. I've never gone to research that. That's an excellent question and something that's worthy of note. But I do know that many scholars, post-millennial scholars, who are seeing that more and more of the context of the New Testament is the complete sin death of, of physical Israel. All the parables Christ taught are teaching about this, or nearly all of them, and so on. They... They, they, they start to realize this, that the spiritual is what God has in mind in all this teaching, and they run into a roadblock because of their own creeds and statements of faith, and particularly if they're a paid minister, they cannot go against these historical creeds and statements of belief and faith. And I know this is um, hitting you know, some of the conservative Presbyterian um, denominations uh, at least. Uh, but I'll have to bow out because I just I cannot answer the question knowledgeably at all. Now, uh, in terms of the dispensational churches, such as the Southern Baptist Convention, they believe in a physical res resurrection for a thousand years during a millennial kingdom. Is that correct? Uh, that's that a, my understanding. Is that a spiritual? No, I don't believe they. No, I believe they believe the bodies will all come out of the graves. But someone can correct me if they know otherwise. Mark, I have a question for you. Yes. Uh, coming out of Acts 24, uh, and Paul's uh, uh, kind of rebuttal, or at least defense, he says, uh, but this I confess to you that according to the way, which they call a sect, uh, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written by the prophets, having a hope in God which these men themselves accept, 
that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So what, in, in your views, what is that resurrection of the just and the unjust that uh, Paul is referring to in, in that passage? And also, uh, he, know, he doesn't say anything um, about like, the Talmud or the writings of the elders. Everything is the law and the prophets. He doesn't address any of the other extraneous writings uh, by the Jews. No, of course not. Absolutely not. I mean, Jesus came to try to set that straight, and Paul is an extension of Christ very much. Uh, in many different ways. He is just continuing as part of the body of Christ right where Jesus in his fleshly body left off, and that is setting straight all of that corruption that was brought back to Palestine from Babylon, uh, you know, with the Talmud and Kabbalism and all that kind of nasty stuff. So, no, he is going back to the promises made uh I mean, to beginning with Jacob back in Genesis 49, uh, Moses, um, particularly in Deuteronomy 18 and, and Deuteronomy 31 and 32, and then all the prophets. He's, that's, that's Paul's source. But the, that's the important part, is that his source is the Old Testament scriptures given to physical Israel. And... And most of our non-dispensational Bible-believing churches uh, today believe that, well, at the cross or at the day of Pentecost or possibly at A.D. 70, God wiped out all of those uh, promises or fulfilled them or canceled them and then started over with a new entity called the church. And the dispensationalists have a field day shooting holes in that idea process. Um, to get back to your question as far as the resurrection of 1 Corinthians 15, which is very much based upon Isaiah 24 and 25 that we looked at uh, last week. Again, we're talking about a covenantal restoration. If the gospel was about physical healing and physical resurrection, it would be judged a failure uh, in the world's mind because most believers in Jesus physically die. Their body fails. Uh, they get sick. Sometimes they might get well, but eventually they get sick and die or they just drop dead. And it's so, I mean, if the gospel is about that, it is not a very successful gospel. But when we realize that the gospel is about spiritual restoration, then it makes sense. A, a restoration of the Garden of Eden where God and man can be in each other's presence. The, the idea of the resurrection of the just and the unjust, the unjust part is a little more problematic, and I was really hoping that William Bell would be on with us tonight to, uh, to answer that, because he's just recently done several presentations on that fact, and, in, uh, and he actually talked about it last week uh, in the tape about the resurrection of the just and the unjust out of 1 Corinthians 15. But I'm not, I'm not really uh, prepared to go into that at this time. All right. Again, so what we're wanting, we are wanting spiritual fellowship with God, we are wanting to be joined to God by being joined to Christ, who is joined to the Father. Uh, 
Paul uses the marriage analogy. We have the temple analogy that we are living stones in the temple of God that Christ came to build. And so resurrection life is to be covenantally bound to Jesus Christ and thereby covenantally tied back to the Father. And so if the gospel is about that, it's very much a complete and total success. And that's what we, you know, looked at last week in the Gospel Feast back in Isaiah 25, uh, where the uh, the veil, the face of the covering that's cast over all people will be destroyed in this mountain, which of course is Mount Zion, which is a symbol of this eternal spiritual kingdom. He will swallow up death in victory. The Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the rebuke of his people, which in this context of Isaiah is Israel, the rebuke of his people Israel he shall take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken it. This is very parallel to Daniel chapter 9, where he, in the prophecy of weeks, he talks about how that in the, the Messiah is cut off in the 69th week, but in the 70th week he will finally solve Israel's sin problem. Their sin and transgression problem will be completely solved. It's a perfect parallel here to Isaiah 25, 8. And that was, of course, what Christ came to do. And uh, the, the supposition here is that Christ completely succeeded. The dispensationalists say that he completely failed. The non-dispensational churches say, well, he partially succeeded, but he's still got loose ends. He's got to come back again to take care of loose ends. So with this corrected post-millennial view that I'm suggesting, he, he completely succeeded just as it was predicted in Isaiah 25, just as it was predicted in Daniel 9. And then where we're trying to go tonight is into Ezekiel 37 to look at that as well. So, Mark, are you, are you just saying basically that there will not be a physical resurrection, but what what does the um, Jesus parable about separating the sheep and the goats and a judgment, so how is the judgment separated from a resurrection? Well, it's not. That's the point. It's not separated from the resurrection, but that judgment that was being discussed in Matthew 25, the context is one from Matthew 23 through Matthew 24 through Matthew 25. In Matthew 23, Jesus is pronouncing woe upon woe upon the leadership of physical Judah or physical Israel. I mean, he calls them horrible, horrible names. And then in Matthew 24, he pronounces the doom upon the nation, the utter and complete destruction of the temple uh, and the nation. And in 25, he, roll, he rolls into a whole series of parables about this coming judgment, which is the judgment he's just described in Matthew 24, the judgment on physical Israel. And so, again, today we like to compartmentalize and, and look at Matthew 23 as a totally separate thing, as Matthew 24 is a separate thing, and as bad, or actually we split Matthew 23 into two separate things because of the horrible translation of the King James Bible. We take the first part and say it's talking about the destruction of physical Israel in AD 70, and then we split it somewhere, 
and say that the last part is talking about the end of the world, but that's a total mistranslation. The question that he was asked was, when will these things be, the destruction of the temple and the end of the age, the Greek word eon. And Jesus over and over throughout Matthew 24 affirms that this generation will not pass until all these things have been accomplished. He says it once in 23. He says it twice at 24, once at the beginning and once at the end. There is no logical split where you can say the first part applies to AD 70 and the second part applies to the end of the universe. The end of the universe is nowhere found in Jewish literature. It doesn't appear in the thought process of the good writers or even of the corrupted Talmudic writers. There is no discussion of the end of the universe. They had no comprehension that that could could happen or or th- or that it was significant and so and I understand this is not a a majority position in most churches today, but there is a growing number of scholars who are really seeing uh, this and and it's it's shocking but it's incredibly powerful when you see that the judgment talked about in matthew twenty five is one and the same as the judgment pronounced in Matthew 23 upon the Pharisees, described in gory detail in Matthew 24, and then described in parables in Matthew 25 about the virgins needing to have oil for their lamps, which refers to the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which only came upon the believers, and uh, the sheep and the goats. I mean, this is the separation of the righteous remnant of Israel from the corrupt majority who were all going to be utterly destroyed. And uh, <laughs> whereas we all are part of that judgment, and, and for us it is still future, remember that the moment our body dies, we, we are outside of time. And if the judgment occurred in A.D. 70 in earth years, we will know no difference. I mean, when we die, we we can go and participate uh, in that judgment just the same as if it has a calendar date of 3,013, 8,028, or any date that you pick. And a lot of people really get hung up on that. That's a showstopper for my wife in particular. Well, why does uh, God's eternal judgment need a date? It doesn't. That's my point. I mean, everyone is judged when they die. And the metaphor of the sheep and the goats sort of leaves us with the impression that uh, Jesus called time out and said, okay, now now is the moment. Everybody come on over here. The sinners get on the left and the good people get on the right. And we're going to have judgment. But do we really understand that passage that way? Or do we understand that as his portrayal of what it takes to be on his right as opposed to ending up on his left. Is is that intended to tell us that this happens at some end times moment? Because I don't believe the 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 uh I don't believe the mainline churches such as a Lutheran church, if I remember my catechism, uh I don't remember anything ever about that, an end an end moment or or an end date. 
Huh. Uh, it was always, it was always, uh, you better watch out. <laughs> better learn what we're teaching here, here today and so on. In Matthew 24, is, is that not true? I mean, is this not an allegory of, uh, of the good guys and the bad guys being uh, sorted out? Uh, it doesn't mean well, that. Rather, I mean, that, the, the, again, the, the, the popular approach today is to just take this and read it as if it was written to American Christians in the year 2014. Uh, and certainly you can get some of the principles correct when you do that, but you have to understand that this is addressed to the first century Judean nation who were in a state of sin death and they were headed to utter destruction to a point from which they could never return. And there, there's a great sense of urgency in the, in the message that's, that is one context from the 23rd chapter of Matthew all the way through the 25th chapter of Matthew. And I believe that every, pro, every parable in Matthew 25 and the ones at the end of, of 24 are all warnings to first century Judea to, to repent, to go back to the original words of the prophets, which all point to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the focal point of all of the Hebrew prophecies and you know, that's what they needed to do, and they had to do it quickly, or they would be utterly and completely destroyed. Now, are there principles in that that would apply to us today? Absolutely, there are. Um, but we have to understand the audience relevance. We have to understand the context. Who is being addressed? What are the circumstances? You know, what is the setting? And, and, and those kind of things to really, you know, understand... Well, What's going on here? Jesus said to those on his left, for as much as you did this, no, he, first he said to those on his right, for as much as you did this to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. I mean, this was a statement of why the uh, sheep were being put on his right. They had done to the least of their his brothers, what, uh, yes. what, what he then and said, that this is as, as same as if you're doing it to me. And then to those on his left, he said, uh, uh, go, that and go now into eternal damnation. Uh, he said that in some manner. Uh, uh, because for as much as you fail to do this to the least of these, my brothers, you fail to do it to me. And they argued with him. They said, when did we see you naked, hungry, in jail, when did we not do that to you? And he said, ah, but it wasn't me. You didn't do it for someone else. Yes. That's, and, that, and, that's, isn't that, and isn't that whole story perfectly parallel to the story of the Good Samaritan? Sure, but why, mean, is that, why is that any different for us than it would be for the first century followers? I don't understand why well, that, not, that, that, why that would not, not apply equally. Well, that's what I'm saying. The principles are timeless. But I'm just saying that the original context is applying it to first century Judah, just as the, as the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is easier to see that in. The, the, the priests are condemned, the Pharisees are condemned, and 
the lowly Samaritan, the unclean person that no one would have anything to do with, he is the one who gives water and health and everything to the least of these, who is exactly who he's commending here at the end of Matthew 25. So, so yes, the principles are completely timeless, but there is a strong, strong condemnation of the priests and the Pharisees in all of these, uh, in all of these parables. And when you only apply it to our modern day, you miss the original context and the original urgency, uh, you know, that was intended, I believe, in that context that runs through those three chapters of Matthew. But, uh, yeah, this wasn't what I had planned to talk about tonight. But anyway, it's, a, it's an interesting, uh, you know, aspect of this. And what we're trying to say Nearly all of the non-dispensational churches, including the Catholic Church, have said that the church replaced Israel, either at the cross or on the day of Pentecost or at A.D. 70, a growing number are saying. But what I'm proposing, because the dispensationalists can shoot holes in all that, what I'm proposing is that the church did not replace Israel. The church is Israel. Israel was completely transformed from a corrupt, dead, physical, adulterous, idolatrous people in, a, in one generation, in 40 years, from the preaching of John until the destruction of Jerusalem, in that one generation... Israel was transformed into a perfect, eternal, spiritual, incorruptible dwelling place for God on earth, perfect bride for Christ, uh, with eternal life where sin is no longer a problem. Uh, I mean, this is the gospel. This is the hope of Israel, and this is the resurrection that Paul is speaking of. It's a complete transformation of Israel from a spiritually dead carcass of a people into a vibrant, spiritually alive people who live for God, who are priests for God, who rule with God, etc., etc., etc. This is what we see in the writings of Paul. This is what we see in the book of Revelation. This is what was promised in Isaiah 25, in Ezekiel 37, in the book of Hosea, in the book of Daniel, etc. It's a complete transformation. So what, what I'm proposing is a continuity. And, and in Acts 13, we saw a turning point where the physical nation of Israel became Sodom. They became Egypt. They became Satan, the adversary. They became the enemy. This is uh, an excellent place to go on this is to Revelation 3, during, to the letters to the uh, seven churches of Asia, if I can find it here. Uh, yeah, okay, Revelation 3, 7. 
to the messenger of the assembly in Philadelphia. Now, this is the literal Greek. It's not our King James, which says the angel of the church. But the Greek said, to the messenger of the assembly in Philadelphia, right? These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who is who has the key of David, he who is opening and no one shuts, and he who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. I have set before you a door. It is open and no one is able to shut it because you, you have a little power and did keep my word and did not deny my name. Lo, I make of the synagogue of the adversary, and that says Satan in the King James, but this is the opponent. Now, who is the opponent? You know, we keep seeing in the New Testament. I make the synagogue of the opponent. Those who say themselves are Jews, they are not. They lie. Lo, I will make them that they may come and bow before your feet and may know that I loved you. Because you kept the word of my endurance, I also will keep you from the hour of trial that is about to come upon all the earth. And this is the great tribulation that our dispensationalists speak of, but we believe that it happened in the first century, the, three and a, the last three and a half years of Nero's uh, reign, um, to try those dwelling on the earth Lo, I have come quickly. Now, this was written 2,000 years ago almost. I come quickly. Hold fast to that that you have, that no one may receive your crown. He who is overcoming, I will make him a pillar in the sanctuary of my God. And he shall not go out of it anymore. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven from God, also my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the assemblies. So this letter, you know, really has it all. It's, it's full of resurrection life, of being part of God's temple for eternity, of having God's name written on your forehead. This is like a bride taking the name of her husband. Um, it's something that was going to happen quickly when this letter was written, not thousands of years in the future. And it, this letter clearly states that the synagogues of the Jews or Judeans are the enemy. They are not the people of God anymore. Israel has moved on and left them behind. Israel has been transformed, and these people are now the enemy of God. I'm sorry, I get a little fired up on this. Okay. Have I got a connection with everybody still? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we're still okay. there. Okay, good. But so anyway, I understand this can be quite shocking if you've never heard this even suggested before. For me, it was a 10-year journey. So I'm not suggesting that you even remotely believe any of this just because I'm suggesting it tonight. But I am at least encouraging our listeners to look into this. There are many, many, and a growing volume of great books that point this out. This is the only end times view that can utterly refute and destroy uh, dispensationalism because it demonstrates that God intended always to fulfill the promises to physical Old Covenant Israel spiritually, not physically. Dispensationalism teaches that all those promises must be fulfilled physically, 
And since they haven't been, they therefore are still in the future. And that God was just a little mistaken about his timeline when he said, I'm coming quickly, I'm going to set my kingdom up in the days of the Roman kings. And unfortunately, because God was mistaken, all of his prophets for hundreds of years were also mistaken and by God's own criteria are therefore false prophets. But uh, uh, jumping back to Acts 23-26, in Paul's mind, the hope of Israel and the resurrection and restoring the kingdom of David were all one thing. They, were, they would all happen at the same time. They would all accomplish all of these promises to Israel all in one fell swoop. And again, we can demonstrate that this did occur spiritually uh, in the first century. Dispensationalists say, well, it all happened to have physically. It didn't happen in the first century. It hadn't happened since. So it's still off in the future. Well, what about this three and a half years, uh, Mark? Where of Nero's reign, uh, something was going to happen in three and a half years of Nero's of Nero's reign? Yeah, all the Christians are going to be butchered. They're going to be martyred, executed. The the power of Judah is married to the power of Rome for three and a half years. And very few Christians are going to survive that. Nearly all the apostles will be executed during that time. With the, you know, John probably is the only one who survives. Um, I mean, there, there's no continuity. When you, when you start looking at the writings uh, of early Christians in the early 2nd century, the very late 1st century, there is no continuity. With, they're all very confused um, because the whole first generation, I mean, were basically annihilated by the combined power of the uh, corrupt Judean leadership and the power of Rome, the, har- the harlot riding the beast, as it's pictured in the book of Revelation. And this is why, you know, one of the sub-themes of the book of Revelation is to be faithful unto death, because many of the people that this letter was written to would be killed for their faith in Jesus Christ. This three and a half years, sometimes it's listed as you know, 180-something days. Sometimes it's usually it's listed as time, times, and a half. One, two, and a half. So that you add that together, it's three and a half. It, it, it keeps cropping up in different ways, but it all equals three and a half years, and that's the time of the Great Tribulation, again, which our dispensational friends are, are many of them are claiming that they're already in it. You know, they've got life so rough that, of course, they're in the Great Tribulation today. You know, they can't afford to buy a new bass boat or a brand-new pickup truck this year. And that's a harsh generalization against our Southern Baptist friends. I do apologize. Uh, Mark, do you have any any books that kind of delineate this position? I do. I have a whole list of them. Uh, the, The newest one that's really good, um, <laughs> I'm having a scene on a moment. A, a pastor in Rocky Mount, North Carolina, named Glenn Hill. Um, of course, he he studied his way into this view, and uh, was promptly fired uh, by his church. 
and he's 70 years old now. He he's just a wonderful man. I I met him uh, in July, but he has a book out that's uh, $12 that goes through um, all of this, and it's kind of an introductory uh, book. Um, it's twelve dollars, or if you buy a case of ten, they're ten dollars each. I've I've given I bought a case of ten. I've already uh, given out I think about six or seven of them since July. Uh, the the book that really got this going that that unfortunately that should have been what the Scofield Bible is today was written in the 1880s in England, and it's called the Parousia by uh, <laughs> can't remember his first name. But he was a congregational minister at a small church in a small town in England. uh, Or it might have been a large church in a small town in England, but it was a congregational church. And uh, he had studied his way into this view, uh, as many were doing from the 1820s on. uh, They were really building a huge amount of momentum. But when the Schofield Bible came out, it just, just swept away all of the progress in this direction, which which I believe was correcting the errors in the classical post-millennial view of prophecy. Um, but anyway, the parousia by Fred... Uh, ah, uh, I can't remember his first name. But uh, I'll try to get a list together and give it to Tom that he can post um, on the site. There's a brand new book out that I got in July by Joel McDermott, who works for American Vision? Uh, Gary Demar, uh, I think I think they're tied in together, and uh, he he goes through every parable in the Book of Luke, uh, at least from a certain starting point in Luke nine all the way to the end of the Book of Luke, and he demonstrates how that every one of these parables is really talking about the the fatal sin and corruption of first century Judea. And, I mean, these are some of our old favorites that we've heard sermons on our whole lives, but he he puts a whole new powerful uh, contextual analysis on all of these parables. Uh, so it, it's a very powerful book. It's very quick and very easy to read. He's got several good appendices, one on does there really need to be a physical temple rebuilt in Jerusalem. I mean, the whole book is written as a refutation of dispensationalism and it's an incredibly powerful book and and its name is uh, Jesus v. Jerusalem like Jesus versus Jerusalem but it's Jesus v. Jerusalem and it's published by American Vision Press uh, just a year or two ago and its author is Joel McDermott which is M little c capital D U R M O N so uh, that's a good primer. The Parousia is an excellent primer, but it only goes through New Testament books. It doesn't go into the Old Testament. Glenn Hill's book, which I can't think the name of. <laughs> uh, let me do a Google search on it real quick. The Parousia, Mark, is by James Stewart Russell. I do have the Perfect. book here. Thank you. Yes. Okay. And it's uh, you know it's excellent. It's so comprehensive. In, J- Russell was given a an honorary doctorate because that book was so well documented and was basically irrefutable, demonstrating that what we call the second coming in the King James Bible is actually the parousia, and that's a technical Greek term 
talking about a, a ruling king making his presence known uh, in, in a subsidiary realm. And so it's, it's definitely not the idea of Jesus coming back in his physical body that he had before. He doesn't need that body anymore because he has a body now and it's all of us. He lives in all of us, the believers in him. We are his body. He is our head. We are his body. So he doesn't need his physical body again. And yet, apparently the dispensationists believe he's coming back in his physical body to sit in the physical chair that David sat in, in physical Jerusalem on the physical temple mount. So, Mark... Um the the dispensationalists have a big problem with Matthew 24. I was just reading the footnotes. Uh, and uh, they were put in in 1967. Um, yeah. And um, the, the story of the sheep and the goats, of course, uh, we take that to mean that uh, the uh, all God's children are she, either sheep or goats. What what the dispensational teaching is in these footnotes is they renamed all of these three classes, and uh, so uh, the sheep. It says I'll read you what it says who the who the classes are. Um, the subjects of the judgment are all nations. So this judgment that Jesus is carrying out here with the sheep and the goats, according to Cyrus I. Schofield's uh, successors is only against uh, the, the Gentiles and not against uh, Israelites. They're not judged. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and uh, then it says that the three classes of individuals are the sheep, and they are the, this is quote, they are the saved Gentiles. Then the goats are unsaved Gentiles. And then... The brethren, now the words are in there that he who has not, has, has, uh, has failed to do this to the least of these, my brethren, have, he has failed to do it to me. The brethren, it says, are the, quote, people of Israel. So we've got to be really careful about using that word Israel because the dispensationalists have converted that word, the people of Israel, to um, modern-day modern Israel. Israel, yeah. And uh, so then uh, what, this, what they've done with this whole passage is they've transformed it into a racial thing where uh, Jesus is judging only Gentiles and all of the people of Israel are, are, are judged by a different standard. They're not even judged by this. And um, this is the modern dispensational teaching. Yep. Uh, that's how they avoid... Going ever reading Matthew 24 because what they say about Matthew 24 is, well, if you misread the language, you're going to be fooled into thinking you live in a works gospel where you can go out and uh, do good to fellow men and go to heaven for it, and uh, the heaven the hell will be full of all kinds of people who did good and uh, did not follow Jesus. So this is the dispensational argument that they make to but, justify changing all of this. Uh, but they had yeah, to but, change all of this meaning of, of this whole passage in order for people not to um, take it seriously. And that's why I've never heard anybody in a, pres in a dispensational church ever preach from Matthew 25. 
or yeah, from Matthew 25. Have you? I don't. I, ne- I never heard him ever read this uh, this section to people. Well, I can remember as a child here in Vernon McGee doing Matthew 25, and he was a dispensationalist. But I, at the time, I wouldn't have really understood, you know, all the nuances of uh, of what he was trying to do. But you know, you see, they completely twisted the passage to be exactly the opposite of mm-hmm. what the context says it really is. It's really talking about the judgment on physical Israel, and they start with the assumption that physical Israel is all exempt because Paul in Romans said, and thus all Israel shall be saved. And so they take that to mean that all of physical Israel, you know, will will be saved unconditionally, well, and that is not at all. Mark, Mark to me, when I read it, it doesn't say that. It says to me that all mankind will be judged by Jesus uh, according to his standards, and uh, that this allegory is simply a simple a way of telling you that. And it's just for, for what, what I read the scriptures, that's how it comes out to me when I read it. I don't see anything in here judging a nation. Or something like that, and I, I think the dispensationalists twist and turn to make it that way, but uh, it, it doesn't. It, it, to me, I just don't see it that way. It looks like personal, individual judgment of mankind that we all will have to undergo someday. Am I missing something real obvious here, or what? Well, the the context, uh, the continuous context of Matthew twenty three through twenty four through twenty five. Matthew 23 is talking about a judgment on the Judean leadership. Matthew 24 is talking about the imminent destruction of the Judean nation. And Matthew 25 is a continuation of the, at the same setting, the same topic. It's just, it carries it to that individual level. You know, you, you have the leadership judged. You've got the whole nation, their, their institutions, the temple judged. And then you've got the individuals in the nation judged in 25 so that's the part it's all one thought it's all one talk that jesus gave to his disciples and to to just say that he changed the subject in the middle doesn't really make sense but again the principles of all of this are timeless he can come tomorrow and judge the united states just as he came and judged judea in the first century the scriptures never limit him to two, three, five, one coming. You know, he, he's in absolute sovereign position, and he can do whatever he wants to at any time. Well, thank you, Mark. I think there was a lot of food for thought there, and it certainly was interesting, even if we did get off a little on off track. Thanks for listening. If you like this program, please let your friends know about it and our other thought-provoking podcast. And be sure to visit our website, whtt.org, for a wealth of information on Christian Zionism and other critical issues that we face. Also, at whtt.org, you can watch for free our award-winning documentary film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Join us in our efforts to wake the town and tell the people. Start small, think big, and press on towards the straight gate.